All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor, Father, of gathering together as family, for that's what we are, Father. In the name of your Son, we are family. Thank you for gathering us together this way so tirelessly, so faithfully. Thank you for giving us truth that sets us free. Thank you for ordaining and inspiring the Word of God through your Spirit, Father. Thank you for giving such things to us. We know that it's motivated by your love in the form of grace, mercy, and then, of course, faith itself. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this evening, that are still ill, that uh, displaced for a variety of reasons, Father, just... We just pray that they understand that our hearts are with them, that our spirit is with them, and that we desire for them to be back into the fold face-to-face as soon as possible. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that somehow, uh, as a means, as a function of your patience, we are given the opportunity to evangelize them so that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity, what a blessing that would be. Special prayers on the goings-on over the course of the next day or so in the church with the memorial service and all those who might be attending, that they might hear the gospel and respond as well if they haven't already. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is good? That's the big question now that's been sort of on our hearts for um, uh, many weeks now. This is part 13 of this lesson. And then, of course, who gets to define it? I mean, these questions have pretty much been answered at this juncture, but... um, as is the case with so many doctrines in the Word of God, we have to see Scripture. We have to sort of allow the Spirit to, for lack of a better term, massage it in our souls. Uh, it takes time for us to gain said faith um, so that we are truly set free. And so that's the patience that He's been affording us. Uh, with that said, over the past couple of weeks, we've, and just looking back, uh, I like to do this, especially when we come off of a holiday. We've had two lessons titled, It's Time to Man Up, that was sort of an offshoot, and two titled, Christmas Specials. And not surprisingly, both lessons dovetailed into each other, as well as with our primary course of study, which is what is good and who gets to define it. So we had, it's time to man up, we had a couple of Christmas specials, and then uh, woven in between there was part 12, if you remember, of what is good. And so we've had these, a lot of moving parts, but the themes are the same. And that's what the Spirit's saying here. He's saying, um, pay attention to what I'm saying uh, between the lines, even though it's a Christmas special, even though it's specifically meant for uh, men to hear, you know, it's time to man up. Um, what's the theme here? So with all of the moving parts, let's just do a quick review to tie some things together and regain our footing from a couple of weeks back. If you remember, this was a principle from a couple of weeks ago. God's love being called out 
by God isn't the same thing as being, quote, called out for the sake of embarrassment as in the case of the world. When God's Spirit says something like, it's time to man up, it's a privilege to hear it. Perspective being the key, of course. Again, God's not interested in embarrassing us the way that the world does. Um, He doesn't have a problem with any shame, per se. Uh, He doesn't because that might lead us to uh, repentance, strictly speaking. But when the Spirit says something as straight up as, it's time to man up, it's a privilege to hear it. And if you have the right perspective, you're grateful. Um, you don't act like a child. You don't act like a, you know, a little baby that says, oh, well, you know, this or that. It's a privilege to hear it um, up here on the board. So when God calls us out, he's proffering up his own grace. See, that's what a mature person thinks about. If the Spirit takes the time out of an already stuffed schedule, a stuffed curriculum, it's not like we're not learning a lot of stuff. It's not like we're not increasing in um, knowledge and faith. When he takes that time in our curriculum and inserts something like man up, he's really proffering up his own grace. He's not just saying it's a, quote, tear you down or say this is see all the things you're not doing men see what failures you are Uh, of course he wants you to accept those things in humility but the reality is he wants you to grow up and when you grow up you bring glory to him and it's by grace remember that these things happen so when God calls us out he's proffering up his own grace putting it on the line for all to see even the angels consider Jesus as the Spirit revealed to us the first and best person to consider when thinking about manning up just happens to be the same person we celebrate on Christmas. So we had two lessons on it's time to man up, and then we had two Christmas specials. And make no mistake about it that the same person we're supposed to look at for a perfect example of what it means to man up is the same person we celebrate at Christmas. Go to John 3.16. John 3.16. The Spirit never messes up, guys. That's all I can tell you. His ways are perfect. Um, And it always seems in retrospect, you know, when we look back at how he takes the congregation, the timing of the lessons, etc., it's always easy to see looking back. um, Once you're delivered from certain things, once you've learned certain things or maybe even been given certain faith. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. Now I was thinking about this and I invite you to do the same. We might say that the greatest manning up a man can ever do is to love. The greatest manning up a man can ever do is to love. More specifically, to love like Jesus did. That's the greatest way that any of us can, quote, man up, to love like Jesus did. So ask yourselves, especially you men out there, is it difficult to love the way Jesus did? Is it difficult? Do you find it difficult? to love the way Jesus did? If you answered yes, as I do pretty much daily, 
then welcome to a little club we call humility. The question is why? Why is it difficult for man to love like Jesus did? In all fairness to the question, every man that's ever lived can actually answer that for themselves, if they're honest. But just in case you're struggling with where to start with that particular internal dialogue, allow me to assist you. Loving like Jesus, I mean really, really loving like Jesus, when you don't like the other person. How about that? Do you love like Jesus when you don't like the other person? Luke 6, 32 to 33. We'll look at that. How about when the other person doesn't, quote, deserve it? Do you love like Jesus then? Romans 3, 10. Or how about when the person is, quote, bad? Romans 5, 7. Or how about everybody's favorite? You just don't feel like it. <laughs> it's too much work. <clears throat> to love some people. They're just, I don't know, nudges. Not your favorite person on the planet. Um, you choose the reason why, but sometimes you just don't feel like loving like Jesus loved because it implies a sacrifice. And we like to keep our time and our energy to ourselves, don't we? Because we're greedy. And that's the exact antithesis of the one who was supposed to man up after Jesus Christ. Go to Luke 6.32. We'll look at when you don't like the other person. What did Jesus have to say about that? Well, he actually had a lot to say about that. But here's at least one scripture to iron this out. So again, if you're struggling where to start, guys, here's a good place. If you want to know what it means to man up, then... Listen up. Luke 6.32. Again, the theme so far set before us is that the greatest way to man up is to love. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. You get the point? You get the, those, those are red letters, right? Those are the words of Jesus the one we're trying to understand, the one we're trying to emulate. Those are the words of Jesus himself whose love we are pondering right now. So the question on the table is, why is it so difficult to love the way Jesus did, to man up like he did? Well, for starters, he loved his enemies, and uh, that's hard. That's not easy to do to love your enemies, and he had no misconceptions. He wasn't like this, you know, what do you call it, willful, ignorance guy. He knew the heart of man. John 2.25 says, for he himself knew what was in man. He had no misconceptions about what was inside of man and the nature of the people that he came to save. He didn't have any misconception. So it wasn't like he didn't understand things. It wasn't that he loved out of ignorance, in other words. He loved in a much greater knowledge of things that we don't even know, a much greater knowledge than what we have. We have much less. I mean, think about it. If, if, wouldn't it be that much harder if we knew 
Okay. Everything a particular person has said against you in their head. Uh, some of you would throttle each other. Some of you would never speak to one another ever again if you only knew what that person thought about you every day. It doesn't always come out, right? Thank God. But Jesus had a much better understanding, an infinitely greater understanding of those kinds of things. He was not under any misconceptions about the nature of man. As a matter of fact, Scripture says he knew what was in the heart of man. So he was not confused about it, but yet he still made the choice. He still came to seek and save that which was lost. That's love. That's what it means to man up. Maybe your spouse is lost, wandering in the woods. Maybe your best friend. Maybe somebody in the church. But you don't like them very much, do you? Because at the last potluck, they wouldn't sit next to you. <laughs> or, or they liked someone else's soup better than they liked yours. And now you're all offended. So you don't like them, right? Because we're petty. You're laughing, but you know that stuff exists. And imagine if you knew what they thought of you and your stupid soup. You would never talk to them again, right? It stunk. It was horrible. <laughs> the point is, Jesus, it's not like Jesus was laying down his life for people that had him fooled. I believe it's the classic case of he, he didn't have to like them to love them. It doesn't say in the Bible that Jesus liked everyone. If anything, I mean, think about it. If you're the perfect God-man, uh, sin itself would be very distasteful to you. And he was dining with sinners, and prostitutes and tax collectors and people that were dregs of society. <clears throat> and so it's not like he was fooled, but he loved them just the same. You don't have to like someone, in other words, to love them. And the same goes for us. Let us not forget that none of us are really all that likable, especially prior to being saved. We're just a bunch of selfish jerks. We mask it really good, and we market ourselves. We have our own personal brands, right? Well, I'm going to brand myself as the nice guy. But the reason you want to be the nice guy is so that you can be the nice guy because that elevates you. You're nicer than the next guy. So you do everything to be the nice guy. And lo and behold, you're just an arrogant jerk. You're just being self-centered. That's just creature credit after all. You're not nice because you want to be nice to bring glory to God. You're nice because you want to be the nice guy. And you want everybody to say, oh, that's the nice guy. Right? What's so likable about that? That sounds like a jerk to me. Again, the point on the board, loving like Jesus, really, we just saw when you don't like the other person. I mean, what credit is that to you, etc.? How about when the other person doesn't, quote, deserve it? Go to Romans 3.10. This one's almost laughable, right? When the other person doesn't deserve it. I always get a kick out of this. People always forget where they came from. What do you mean they don't deserve it? Look in the mirror and read this to yourself. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. That means you in the mirror. What do you mean they don't deserve it? Who does? Who deserves uh, mercy? 
grace, love. Who deserves any of it in the godly sense? No one. Or how about do we really love like Jesus when the person is, quote, bad? Go to Romans 5, 7. Oh, they're bad. Romans 5, 7. Romans 5, 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're all bad. We were all bad apples. <laughs> we didn't have anything to offer God. Are we so quick to judge? Are we going to leave our love at the gate because someone's bad? Because they're not worthy of it? Please. And then how about the last one? When you just don't feel like it, go to Acts 20, 35. Do we love like Jesus? I mean, really? I like that old saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Or you don't really know the other one, you don't really know a person until times get tough. There's a lot of swell people out there when times are going well. Take away a couple of their creature credit or their, their little creature comforts, Next thing you know, they're wild animals. They'll stab you in the back quicker than you can say boo. And you haven't even gotten out of your, your family yet. Acts 20, 35. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, remember, you've got to do everything as under the Lord. Who cares about what you feel like it? Who cares if your knees are sore or your back is tired or you're mentally exhausted? Who cares? And everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, if you don't feel like it, something might be wrong. Maybe your perspective's off. I don't know. But we're supposed to be doing things as under the Lord, and when our perspective is right, we realize there are great blessings even for us to give. That doesn't just mean flick a nickel in the bucket. It means your time and your energy. You know, it's funny. I was, uh, and I'm not saying I'm great at this. I'm just sharing. I'm exhausted. I was trying to chase down a friend of mine over the holiday. We were supposed to have coffee together. Excuse after excuse after excuse. I'm trying to get him to Christ. He said, yeah, 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 I'm in, I'm in. Oh, and this morning, it was the last straw, I just gave up. This morning, he was hungover. Supposed to have a lot, I'm like, dude, seriously? I'm like, that was like, you knew we were supposed to be getting together, now you're telling me you're too what? Too beat up? To chat? Go to Philippians 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, 3. Philippians 2, verse 3. Again, loving like Jesus really is the point. When you don't feel like it is the sub-point. How about this for perspective? Philippians 2, 3. 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, is humility, regard one another as more important than yourselves. What do you mean you don't feel like it? Well, what about the other person? Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if you know your Bible, you know where that's headed. That's what we call as humiliation. Philippians 2, 7, 8, and so, so forth, right? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What do you mean you don't feel like it? So up here on the board, the point the Spirit's making is very simple. To, quote, man up is to abide in love. I mean, you know, the, the Spirit takes us through this or that scenario. We spend a fair amount of time focusing on um, what Scripture has to say about being a husband and a father uh, and a head over a family, et cetera, et cetera. And there are specifics, but at the end of the day, everything should be done in love. If you love, you fulfill the law. Go to John 15, verse 8. So that's what it really means, is to man up. I always get a kick out of guys that say, you know, oh, I'm manned up. I, I worked 80 hours last week, and I, you know, I put food on the table, and this, that, and the other. Yeah, but your family needed you. They didn't need you working the extra 20 hours that week. They needed you. They needed some guidance, but you were too pooped out because you were playing a game like it's manly always to work to the your knuckles to the bone and have no time or energy left for your family. That's not a balanced life, my friend. John 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. That's a very big statement. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You see, everything is done in love. That's what it means to man up. Don't, you know, don't go to the throne of great. Don't go to the throne room and say, here's my laundry list of things that I did that are manly. That's not going to work because God's going to look at your attitude and your motivation upon every line item. Oh, that's great. You worked 80 hours a week. Oh, that's great. You did this. Oh, that's great. You did this. You did this. Were you motivated? How was your motivation? Was it done in love? Because that's what I'm looking for. Was your heart good on this stuff? Was it done for the right reasons? This is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love is known than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. This is the so-called connective tissue between the past two weeks of lessons. Namely, that our perfect example of manning up is in Jesus Christ, the one who laid down his own life on his own initiative out of love. Isn't that what you see? That's what I see. That's what the Bible says. You want to know what it means to be a, a stand-up man or even a stand-up woman? Then love. 
Love the way Jesus did. Not just when it's easy for you. Not just when you think someone's deserving or someone's good enough of that love. That's bull. That's garbage. That's not Christ-like at all. As a matter of fact, the people who are least esteemed in our lives are the ones who need it the most. They need more prayer. They need more attention. They need more of a lot of things. Why? Because they're the weak ones. The strong ones are getting along just fine. That's what makes them easy to get along with, right? It's the weak ones that get left in the dust. And if you look at Jesus' ministry, who did he go after? He went after the weak. Who did he minister to? He ministered to the weak. He said, these are the ones who need physician, not these ones who are so-called well and healthy. It's really easy to get comfortable and, and, and run with people that are, you know, um, easy to deal with. But that's a lopsided love. Go to John 10.17. I mean, how, how easy was it for the perfect man to deal with a bunch of sinners? Not very. I mean, think about Jesus. He said things like, you know, how long am I going to stay with this ridiculous generation? <laughs> John 10.17. He did all of this out of love. And look what he says in John 10.17. For this reason the Father loves me. Why? You see, it's literally as plain as day. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. So that I may lay down my life. Great love is known this. They lay down his life for his friends, right? Jesus' Father loved him because he laid down his life. So that I may take it again. Not, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. In other words, my motivation is good even. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So not only am I, is my motivation good, I also am abiding in my Father's will, which proves this humility. There's so many examples we can pull from Jesus Christ. And then, of course, all of this points right back to the one reason the Lord God has left us here on earth after salvation this was a principle we got last week, manning up from God's perspective. When God says, quote, man up, it is implied that we are to do so as unto the Lord on the fundamental reality of the gospel. In other words, everything we have to do is we have to do in love, but we're also under the Great Commission. I mean, we have a real purpose here. That gospel should be ever flowing in your homes, in your personal life, in your attitudes about life itself, and it should emanate. And I'm going to talk about things like that tomorrow at the, at the, um, uh, the ceremony for Bill, the memorial service for Bill, because that's what I saw in a guy like Bill. And he's not the only one. I'll have these same discussions when, if I'm still around and you, you die before I'm out of this post for some of you. There's a lot of good people in this congregation. Bill wasn't the only one. He's a fantastic example, as we know but not the only one. He manned up. He understood. He lived the gospel reality. That's what this is all about. And it has to permeate our lives. Living the gospel reality permeates every aspect of our lives. That's what it means to man up. 
That's what it means to be. I, I, I struggle with that term, but I hope you get it. To be the real man, and I, hate to, I struggle with that because I don't want you to take it the wrong way. But I hope you know what I'm saying. I was thinking about that as well because, you know, who knows? Maybe as a result of some of these lessons, people have gone out and, I don't know, upped the ante a little. I don't know. I know a lot of people who have a doormat and or a sign somewhere on the wall of their home. Or maybe it's on a calendar or a poster of sorts. But there are a lot of the following verse floating around in Christian homes today. Go to Joshua 24:14. Joshua 24:14. I know a lot of people I'm giving you the context. It's actually 15 that we're after, but I'm going to take you to Joshua 24:14 first. A lot of people that have this poster that have this, you know, somewhere I don't know in their homes or it seems like the I don't know right thing to do and some people have all the right motivation, but sometimes I wonder, and you can only answer this for yourselves, Joshua 24, 14, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river in, the, in Egypt and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I can't tell you. It might be one of the most popular um, doormats or um, you know, placards or posters or calendar. I don't know. A lot of people seem to have that. Um, but as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. It almost seems like a, you know, tun -tun -tun, right? Do you know what I'm saying? As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. Tun -tun -tun, you expect like a little Machira, you know, like a Roman sword type thing. It's like, tun -tun -tun, you know, I wear the breastplate and the helmet and the, you know. Do you know what I'm getting at? It's almost like that. It's that last phrase of Joshua 24:15 that is plastered all over Christian homes. Yet, and only you can answer this for yourselves, how many of them are truly serving the Lord? As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. You sure you're not serving beer? <laughs> Do you get what I'm getting at? You sure you're not serving something else? You know what I'm getting at? I mean, are you serving the Lord? Or are you serving up dishes of worldliness? When people come to your home, are you truly serving the Lord? Or are you self-serving? I don't know. That's the point. But I know what it means to man up. And I know what Jesus was like. And that's the point. So the point is, you know, regardless of the, all the placards and the doormats and all that stuff, how many are truly serving the Lord? It's a tremendous passage of Holy Scripture. It certainly is. But we all must ask ourselves, especially, are we really serving the Lord? Or is that doormat just to sound a trumpet to visitors to our home? Did you see it coming in, my friends? Did you see it? 
As for me and my household, we serve the Lord. Did you see it? Is it just another game we're playing in order to feel or appear holy or religious even? As the Spirit's been teaching us, manning up begins with humility. So it's the exact opposite of humility if you're lying to yourself and possibly those around you, including said visitors to your home. To put the Spirit's point on paper up here on the board, on this topic of manning up, the most important leadership role you have is spiritual. But don't lie about it. That's what he's saying. If you're going to say stuff like that, then be that person. Otherwise, take it down. The most important leadership role you have is spiritual. This means that your first priority in the home is Christ. Nothing should escape the criticism or the encouragement of the light of truth. You just want the truth. You just want to abide in the truth. You just want to love. And we're not perfect, but that's our goal. What? To be pleasing to the Lord. Whether at home or face-to-face, like Bill, to be pleasing to the Lord. That's why I love the Bible. I just want to know, give me the truth. Give me the light. If I don't know, if I'm confused about something, correct me. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. John 1.9 So, this has been the nature of our studies as of late. Our lessons are meant to open our eyes as we continue to pursue the following two questions. What is good and who gets to define it? We ended part 12, that little sliver, between the two other miniseries with this principle up here on the board. On wisdom, when we find what is truth, then we find the definition for good. Because that's the very best we can find, right? It's just the truth. Isn't that what we're supposed to seek? And when you find it, that's a very good thing. Now, the truth may be something revealing to you that you don't like so much. It may be something that you love. Either way, we want truth because truth is good. So when you find truth, you find the definition for good. We looked at Proverbs 4, 5 to 7, and even James 3, 17. Proverbs 4, 7 up here on the board. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. And that's a good thing. Wisdom has the ability to guard your soul, to guide you in the right direction, to keep your feet on the right path. That's why you want wisdom. But you don't get wisdom unless you have the truth. Because there's an awful lot of lies out there. But God is not a God of confusion. Satan is. The God of this world, that's all he wants to do is confuse you. And the more confused you are, the less wisdom you have, the less understanding that you have. And so your, the baseline um, desire is to acquire wisdom. And then after that, you get understanding. And that's a good thing. So with that said, let's press on now with part 12 of what is good and who gets to define it. If you remember, here's our working framework. We've already exhausted point number one. There are two kinds of revelation, general versus special. Remember, we're after the truth. If you have the truth, then you understand what's good. Well, how is the truth revealed? Generally, 
and specialty. We call them general revelation and special revelation. We looked at general revelation where God witnesses to himself through creation. We looked at Psalm 19, 1 to 6. And then the second part of that fantastic passage in Psalm 19, verses 7 to 14, highlight what we would call special revelation, where God reveals himself directly through Holy Scripture, Christ's incarnation, dreams, visions, and acts. So let's go to Psalm 19.7. Let's pick up where we left off a couple of weeks back. Psalm 19, verse 7. Again, we're into the realm now of special revelation. Psalm 19, verse 7. <clears throat> <clears throat> the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Do you see that? In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Remember, that's what sin wants to do. That's Teshuka. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You see that? Not just the words, but the meditation of my heart. The inner side of you, your motivation even. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. <clears throat> and so what we've noticed, or what we've noted so far up here on the board on that fantastic passage was this. The Word is special revelation. So we're using what I like to call the self-authenticating Word. I mean, it's the Word that we're consulting, which is special revelation, to realize and to learn more about what other special revelations there are throughout human history. So the word itself is special revelation. In the Old Testament, the law, testimony, precepts, commandment, and the judgments of the Lord in Psalm 19, as we just saw, are all speaking about what the New Testament writers, for example, John described as the word. This is all the word, the law, uh, the testimony of God, etc., etc. These are just basically God revealing his own thoughts for us, his own will, his own desires. For mankind. That's special revelation. That's not nature. That's a special revelation. This is how I am. This is what I think about this. This is what I think about you. This is what I think about sin. This is what I think about your Savior. This is what I think about X, Y, and Z, and so on and so on. That's special revelation. And of course, we consult the Word of God. So, as we've learned, the Word of God is both a category of special revelation and the trusted account of the other special revelations we shall investigate. A couple of Thursdays ago, we looked at some holy scripture. Let's quickly review that now. For starters, regarding said 
special revelation God spoke directly with Adam in the garden. Go to Genesis 2.16. Genesis 2.16. I mean, this is about as blatant as it gets. Where God actually, through special revelation, spoke with mankind. Genesis 2, verse 16. So this is certainly special revelation. I mean, you know, Adam and the Adam would not have known not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil unless he was told. That's basically what special revelation means. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And so that's special revelation. God said, this is my commandment. I don't want you to eat from that tree. You need eat from any other tree, just not that. It's like the worst possible, isn't it? I always think about that account. It's like the worst possible thing you could possibly say to anybody, right? You can, it's true, right? You can do all this stuff. Just don't do that one thing right there. And everybody just hovers around that one thing. You're going to do it? I'll do it. You can do it. You want to do it together? It's like, Why? It's the same thing like in life, right? We, what, what's our problem? Why are we miserable? We have, look around. I mean, come on. We have everything. We want for nothing. I shouldn't say that. We need nothing. We want everything, right? Why are we miserable? Because we don't have that one thing. Seriously? You've got everything going in your life. Wonderful relationships, a wonderful church, wonderful fellowship. You're saved. How about we just stop right there? But we'll keep going on. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, but I don't have that one thing right there. Right there. That one thing. So I'm just going to wallow in misery and complain to God for my entire life. And then I'm just going to vomit all over everybody else in my vicinity and irritate the crap out of everybody. Wah, 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 wah. That's not manning up, by the way. Wah, wah, blah. When's God going to deliver me up such and such thing, man? This is ridiculous. <laughs> All of this, and you're focused on that? That's what's going to ruin your peace? That's what's going to rob you of your contentment? Pretty much. It's the same thing, isn't it? You can eat from anything here. God says, eat from any of these things here, just not that one, okay? One tree. Think about it, one tree. Anything else? Not like they were starving. Just saying. Anything else? All they needed was a little nudge. Did he really say? Ooh. I might be able to get God on a little loophole here. So, anyways, remember, special revelation by definition means God reveals himself directly. As we continued, we recounted the fall and the cursing that God performed face-to-face, which certainly constitutes special revelation as well. Staying in Genesis, we see another passage on this. Go to Genesis 3.7. Genesis 3.7. So it's not like God hasn't revealed himself. It's not like God is some big you know, mystery. It's not like his will is unknown. <coughs> whenever he asks something or commands something of us, it's always preceded by the ability to do so by grace. 
So he told them, don't eat from that one. I told you, right? Yep, we're good. Any, mis any problems? Any misunderstandings? Nope. Don't eat from that one right there. You mean that one right there? Yeah, that one right there. Don't eat from that one. Okay, good. He always tells us ahead of time, right? Otherwise, he'd be unjust. To the one who knows it's a sin and doesn't do it, to him is a kind of sin. It's James 4.17. So God holds accountable to those that know better. Genesis 3.7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Why? Because they sinned. And they knew that they were naked. This is the whole fall of mankind now. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. There's a special revelation. In the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself, dot, 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 so on and so forth. One thing we noted after reading this passage was this up here on the board. Special revelation, good doesn't always mean nice. I mean, these individuals are cursed after this. Case in point, God cursed the serpent and the first two humans for disobeying his command. But now this is what's going to happen. Just like he's done throughout the Bible. He says, if you don't do this, listen, I'm not mocked. What you reap, you're going to sow. I'm not mocked. I'm telling you. I don't lie. That's the God of this world. I don't lie. I can't lie. It's against my very nature. I'm not even a confusing, a confusing God. God is not a God of confusion. So says Holy Scripture. I'm not trying to lie to you. I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm going to tell you straight up. Don't mock me. Some of you right now are going, ooh. I'm mocking him right now with my life. I know this thing that I'm doing and I've been doing is totally wrong. And I'm basically going, eh, I'm going to mock him to his face. And there's no other way of getting around it. There's no excuse for it. But Holy Scripture says God is not mocked. What a person sows, that's what they will reap. Good doesn't always mean nice. Case in point, God cursed the serpent and the first two humans were disobeying his command. Another perfect illustration of special revelation is when the Lord God spoke directly with Israel through Moses mostly. Go to Deuteronomy 5.2. <coughs> Deuteronomy 5.2. So we're just surveying Scripture, seeing where and how special revelation appears in the Bible. Deuteronomy 5, verse 2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make His covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. While I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain, or go up the mountain, he said, and then the Ten Commandments, etc., etc. So there's a special revelation there as well. God just didn't hold Israel accountable to, quote, capital L law without giving it to them, right? He said, I'm going to give you these laws, right? It's, it's, 
It's going to be nice and easy to understand. Don't murder, don't steal, don't cheat, etc., etc. Any questions? Nope. Okay, now I'm going to hold them to you. I'm prove a point along the way, but this is my demand on you. Any questions? Nope. Did they obey? Nope. They didn't get past the first one. Thou shalt have no other god except me. They always had little gods, right? They're all, every time. I mean, come on. Moses goes up. They come back. His own brother has a, a, a golden calf. What the? How long did that take? They're ridiculous, right? His own brother. Like, dude. So I'd, be, I'd be coming up like, come on! <laughs> right? I mean, it's unbelievable. These people had special revelation from the God of the universe. And they still consistently turn their back. You have special revelation from the holy God of the universe. And you still turn your back. They didn't even have all this, remember. They didn't have all this, you see. This was just coming around, right? The law was just being given. They didn't have all this. You have all this. What's your excuse? Ooh. Huh. As a side note, again, we also were given the following to chew on from our previous lessons up here on the board. Much of what is expounded upon over and over in the Bible is the result of special revelation for example, the Ten Commandments, the Exodus miracles, the God-man, etc. In other words, he just said, listen, he said, look at the Bible for what it is. It's basically specific accounts and then the ripple effect. This happened. And then what happened after that? And there are accounts that speak to how that revelation affected humanity. The easiest one to think about, is, of course, is the incarnation of Christ. Right? I mean, everything is affected. The ripple effect of Jesus Christ is magnanimous. I mean, it's hard to, to fathom. And so, you know, you think about the book of Acts, you think about the Gospels, you think about all of Paul's writings later on in the epistles, fighting wars over truth, about faith and justification, all the specifics about it. That's just a ripple effect of what? The guy who came, who said, I came to seek and save those which are lost. Repent and have faith in me, and we're going to be on good grounds. We're going to be in good standing. You get it? Yep. And then everybody, and then just this ripple effect. And that's what you have in the Bible, is a, a finite number of revealed special revelations, and then all the effects, the ripple effects. So I was just thinking about that um, before we depart on that. and We've already thought about this a little bit in the past. There are what we might call anchor accounts recorded in the Bible. These are the, quote, pillars of special revelation that the rest of the Bible seems to wrap itself around. There were certain events. I mean, the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? The parting of the sea, the exodus, all these, these huge events. <coughs> Obviously, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the cross. These are massive events, seismic, if you would, events. Um, and they're sort of the pillars of special revelation. And the rest of the Bible wraps itself around them. Again, the great example is Jesus Christ's incarnation as a special revelation of God. I mean, he was the God-man after all. 
And just think about the New Testament and how much writing precipitated from this one thing. Just think of the New Testament. I mean, the entire New Testament is a function of Christ's incarnation. The four Gospels are complete accounts of him, his ministry, and even his words. And then the book of Acts teaches us of how, uh, how the early church fathers carried out his wishes through the church organism. And then in the book of Romans, we have Paul defending the very faith that Jesus had given him as an apostle, and so on throughout the New Testament. So you have this huge event, and then the ripple effect. And that's the point I'm trying to make here. I'm just trying to get you all to think a little broader, a little more big picture, if not already doing so. Why? Because the benefit in doing so is that the Bible simplifies overall. If you start thinking about the Bible in those terms, that there are revelations of events throughout human history, and they are captured in the Bible, and then there's a ripple effect in the human accounts, the goings-on around each sort of a main event, um, the Bible is very simple. It's actually very simple. So once you start thinking big picture like that, the Bible itself begins to simplify. You begin to see how simple and pure our devotion to Christ should actually be. It's a magnificent reality that for most still thinking with human wisdom is counterintuitive. I mean, think about it. It seems backwards to say that the more someone learns about something, the simpler it gets. I mean, I spent uh, years um, as an engineer, and the more I learned something, it got more difficult, right? It got more and more difficult. In other words, it was more complex. I was asked to do larger architectures or larger technical things and things got more and more difficult because they would just throw in more technology and these things are you know exponentially interacting type thing and it got more and more difficult but with the bible the more you learn the simpler it gets it's completely counterintuitive and it's 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 magnificent that's the whole point that's why a person with a a 75 iq should not be intimidated to pick up their bible and read it doesn't matter what your IQ is at all. That's the whole point. The more you read it, the simpler it gets. Some, frankly, some of the most faithful people I have ever known have what I would call, I don't know, average or maybe, arguably, maybe even below average IQs. And their faith is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's, it's, the, it's the intellectual jackasses like myself that get caught up in all the minutia when the Bible says, don't do that. Paul wrote about that. Stop arguing about genealogies and stupid things and words and this kind of thing. You're missing the point. You're missing the whole point by doing that. But, you know, when you're you know, on the intellectual scheme of things, that's, your nature is to do that very thing, and it's... It's harmful. You can set a lot of people back in the process and turn a lot of people off to Christ in the process. And that's a real tragedy. 
So it is counterintuitive. It seems backwards to say it, but the more you learn about the Bible, the simpler it gets. <laughs> the more you dig your heels in, the easier it is. I mean, you start seeing things as plain as what I just described. You start looking at the big picture like, really? Is really this whole thing's about the gospel? Is that simple? That this whole thing is, a, is, is what God would look at as a salvation plan? A plan to save people? This whole thing? Yeah. This whole thing. Prove a few points along the way. Send the Messiah to get it done. But yeah, this whole thing, this whole program of the ages is really about salvation. It's one big salvation. Yeah. And the gospel is the centerpiece. The method. Yeah. It's that simple. Old Testament, New Testament, always talked about Christ and his work on the cross. I mean, the whole thing. Unbelievable. That's not hard. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that stuff. But the, the, the curious thing is, like the Bible said, like Jesus says, seek and you shall find. Just because you have a 75 IQ doesn't mean you shouldn't be seeking diligently. Just because you have 150 doesn't mean you should be seeking any less diligently. He says, seek and you shall find. So it's counterintuitive, but that's exactly what happens when we diligently seek the truth, dismissing along the way, as we learned, any Chinese whispers, someone's idea about who God is. I'm so tired of that. This is what I think God is. You can have your God, and I'll have mine. I'm just letting you know they're not the same. I just want to be very clear up front that your God and my God are not the same God. That thing you're talking about is unholy. That thing you're talking about that's so nice and so inclusive of all the other religions and all the other people and it's just love just smears over the top of any form of justice or righteousness or integrity from the God of the universe himself. That God is not my God. That God is insulting to my Lord and Savior. Who is the God-man? Who didn't come down here as an option. He came down here as the Messiah, the Savior, the only one. And he said, I'm the only one. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. I'm not interested in negotiating with you human beings. Do you understand? I'm not interested in it. Just like when we evangelize someone, we shouldn't be interested in negotiating. I'm certainly not. I might be patient with you, as God was patient with me, but I'm not going to negotiate the gospel. Because every time I read the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, it's unnegotiable. So we have to stop listening to Chinese whispers, oh, this is God, and oh, you can have your belief. No. So we're out of time, but... Keep thinking that way, that there's a reason why God revealed himself, not just generally, but specially. And we start talking about special revelation. It really is him saying, now you're getting to know me. You want to know what I think about this? This is what I think about this. You want to know what I want for you? This is what I want for you. And don't mock me. Stop mocking me. If I teach you something and you know it's true because you've seen it in Scripture and you've been convicted, 
I'm holding you accountable. And I'm telling you right now, whatever you sow, you will reap. So do not even think about mocking me. And you might be getting away with it for a little while now, but i got to let you go so I can rip your lips off. Like a fisherman, you know, so I can set the hook. I'm going to let you go for a little while, and you're going to get cocky, and you're going to mock me along the way. But eventually I'm going to pull that hook, and I'm going to set that hook, and you're going to have hell to pay. And if you're still alive, if I don't decide to take you out completely, if you're still alive, you're going to be in a lot of pain. And don't tell me I didn't tell you. Amen? As by it's Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for such a wonderful lesson. Thank you so much for giving us these things, these pearls. We just ask for your patience, Father, as we continue to flop around from time to time, Father. We're just so grateful for your mercy, your grace, and your love, and, of course, your patience with us. We just ask for blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world. Father, needs these things so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.